Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. One of the first people that I ever met in the sort of tech policy world, uh, who was a very, very useful person to know, uh, was Gigi Sohn, uh, who at the time was the founder and CEO of Public Knowledge. And for many years, she's been a wonderful and excellent go-to source on a variety of different tech policy topics, from copyright to net neutrality and a variety of other things as well. Uh, Gigi has been widely respected by tons of people in the tech policy world, Um, I would say even among many who disagree with some of her policy positions. Uh, Despite uh, some of the public claims you might have heard from the past few years. Uh, Gigi has never particularly struck me as being driven by anything along the lines of partisan politics, but solely in what she actually believes is right and is willing to fight for. And if you followed her career in any way over the decades, uh, she's always been out there fighting for what she really believes is the right thing to do in the tech policy world. Now, as many of you probably know, especially if you've been reading Tech Dirt closely, After President Biden nominated Gigi to fill the vacant FCC commissioner role that would have brought the FCC back up to its full slate of five commissioners, uh, there was uh, something of a mess, I would say. I would note that it is difficult to think of anyone that I know who is more qualified for such a role. Uh, Beyond her decades of experience in tech and telecom policy, she also spent years as a top advisor to Tom Wheeler when he was... Uh, when he chaired the FCC and was an important uh, player in the the fight to bring net neutrality around that in that uh, period of time. Um, For somewhat unclear reasons, President Biden waited almost nine months into his presidency to nominate her, and then the nomination dragged on and on and on with no resolution. As we chronicled pretty closely on TechDirt, There was uh, something of a vicious, completely made-up, nonsensical uh, smear campaign uh, against her and her reputation, uh, making claims that if anyone knew Gigi would know were blatantly false and untrue and ridiculous, Um, they painted a picture of someone entirely different than the Gigi that everybody knows. Uh, And it was just nothing but a straight up political smear job, Um, likely egged on by certain telecom interests who had a plan all along to keep the FCC deadlocked at a 2-2 setup where nothing meaningful could actually get done. Uh, you know, and as I said, this this seemed to be the plan from from the beginning since since the waning days of the Trump presidency, when the Senate actually rushed through another commissioner uh, 
who had very little on his resume to suggest that he had the knowledge or experience for the job and yet didn't stop the Senate from approving him in no time at all. And then Gigi comes along with decades of relevant uh, experience and two years go by (laughs) and multiple hearings and a whole bunch of just complete nonsense. Um, Earlier this year, eventually when it became clear that this was an untenable situation, uh, Gigi withdrew her nomination uh, after approximately 500 days. And I still think, and we reference this on TechTurd all the time, that it was a, a very, very sad statement on the state of telecom and tech policy in the world today that something like that would happen. Um, we've had Gigi on the podcast before, uh, but it's been quite some time. Uh, and I will note that after that whole unfortunate situation with her nomination, she has now become the executive director for the American Association for Public Broadband, where she's working to get more community-owned broadband built around the country. Uh, as some of you may recall, last year we also released a report uh, by TechTurt writer Carl Bodie um, that was really all about the benefits of community-owned broadband and open access networks. And this has been a topic that has been of great interest to me personally, going back to even before I started TechTurt, way back in the ancient history of the world. So I am excited to have Gigi back on the podcast, mainly, hopefully, to talk about community broadband and what she's looking to do uh, with uh, with AAPB, uh, but I did want to start out by saying, as I've been laying out here, how just regrettable I think the last two years has been in terms of everything that has happened, and it's been beyond frustrating for me personally to watch just story after story that was clearly nonsense and saying that is not the GG that I know and that this is this was totally unfair. So I wanted to start out. I, I don't want to re-traumatize you or make you have to live through this again. But, you know, did you have any thoughts that you want to share in terms of like what has happened over the last two years and, and sort of your response to this mess? Well, before I answer that, Mike, I want to thank you for inviting me and also want to say how um, honored I am to be interviewed <laughs> by the Silicon Valley Oracle. <laughs> and if you haven't read uh, Kashmir Hill's uh profile of Mike in the New York Times, which I think I still get the hard copy newspaper, <laughs> don't ask me why, uh, was uh, has a big prominent picture of him. You should read it because it's his, his recognition is long overdue. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is thank you so much, Mike, for helping me relive a really lousy two years of my life. Uh, well. But I also want to, look, I want to thank you guys and Carl, especially, yeah, uh, for all the support. I got, I had the the one thing that you know keeps me allows me to sleep at night is just knowing how many people supported me, how many real people, yeah. and real organizations uh, supported my nomination. I mean, never in the history of a relatively low level position, right? I yeah. wasn't going, I wasn't being nominated to be the chair, right? Uh, did somebody ever have to gather so much support? But, you know, as you referred to, it's hard to compete, you know, when you've got little local and state organizations and public interest groups and civil rights groups, it's hard to compete not only with the big telecoms and cable comms who, frankly, I am a little flattered. They're obviously scared to death of me. <laughs> right. Uh, 
uh, but also the, the dark money on the right. Uh, this group called the American Accountability Foundation, where, you know, I think The Verge and AP, several, I think so, there's another um, platform trying to trying to figure out who these people are and right. who they're connected to. The influence of dark money uh, and I mean, money period in the in the in in politics is just an absolute cancer. Yeah. OK. And that that really is what killed my nomination. And it infects both Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. There were enough Democrats to get me over the finish line, but several of them hemmed and hawed, the ones who were in election cycle. Right. right? And now the election cycle starts on the odd year on January 2nd, you start getting those emails. Right. Uh, and I, I really do believe there are a handful of Democrats. It was more important to them for them to get the big checks than it was for them to give Joe Biden his choice right. of FCC commissioner. So, um, you know, it, it. I've learned a lot. And again, my my big takeaway is that there are just a lot, lots of people who are supportive and love me. And that's that's kept me going. Yeah, I do have days where I'm still angry and the FCC <laughs> is still at 2-2. Yes. Uh, which is remarkable. We're almost headed into year three of the Biden presidency. Uh, but I feel like I can make a big impact on the outside. And that's that's what I'm determined to do. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think the the whole situation is really unfortunate. Um, but, you know, again, like everybody who knows you <laughs> knows that that, you know, this was this was just a, a, a complete nonsense setup. And, and Well, that's what's crazy, yeah. right? I mean, people who knew me and look, I have friends all over the industry because I've always yeah. believed that if you can partner with somebody you disagree with 90% of the time, it's a, it's a fabulous thing, right? So everybody was always in my Rolodex. There was nobody I said, I will not talk to them. I will right. not work with them. Even up, even before I got nominated, I was working with Comcast and Verizon on trying to get this subsidy, which right. was called at the time, Emergency Broadband Benefit. So I, I never, you know, to, to be portrayed as number one, a crazy left winger, you know, look, right. am I a Democrat? Yes. Am I a crazy left winger? No. Right. In a corporate, I mean, I was called Marxist, right. <laughs> anti-American. Uh, I think somebody just called me not a, a terrorist. <laughs> I mean, wow. <laughs> You're I'm moving like, up in the world. <laughs> it's like, yikes. I just thought I was a communications lawyer, but right. as it turns out, I'm like all these other things. And people said to me, Gigi, that's not you. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a, it's unfortunate, and I guess you know. And this was covered in the, in the Verge. You you mentioned the Verge. The Verge had a wonderful profile discussing this. You know, also reliving two years of hell for you. Um, <laughs> but you know, one of the things that it, it it points at, which is frustrating, and 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 I've heard this from others where there's been some controversies with this administration, where they basically tell you not to defend yourself, um, and I think that's. You know, I, I understand the calculus that goes into that, but I also think that's it's unfair to you, and I think it's it's wrong. I mean, I think you should be able to go out and explain like why these attacks on you are completely ridiculous. And you know. well, because some of the attacks, no, none of my surrogates can really address. So let me right. give you a perfect example. <clears throat> so, as a lot of people know. When Lena Khan was nominated, she was nominated to be a commissioner right. at the FTC. Then she was confirmed. And then the White House, as it can, 
made her chair. Right. Okay. So when you nominate somebody, you don't necessarily nominate them as chair. So what they do is completely legal, but it freaked people out. Right. So they thought the same thing was going to happen to me, which it was not. Right. I remember sort of later in the game, a couple of months before I withdrew, Fox Business wrote this article saying, sources close to Sone tell me that, you know, she has told them that the only reason she's staying in this is because the president, you know, or the administration has, has promised her to be the chair. <laughs> I mean, it was the biggest crock of nonsense. Right. And I'm being very kind by calling it nonsense. <laughs> but who can, there's only two parties that can knock that down. Right. The White House and me. Right. But uh, I can't say anything. And it's actually been some, somewhat surprising. The labor nominee, Julie Sue, mm-hmm. who's having trouble getting over the finish line. I think the administration has given up. Um, she actually did go to the press recently. Uh-huh. So that's a, that's kind of a break in protocol. Cause the white, I asked the white house a couple of times, can I defend myself? And they're like, no and hell no. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as I said, there've been a few examples of that. I mean, there was this whole, the whole thing too, which I don't know if you followed it or not with like the whole, like disinformation governance board, which was oh, yes. a mess in terms of how they rolled that out. And, and like, I think just, I, I have no idea how anyone in the administration could have thought that like the way they presented that was the right way to, to do that and, or to name the stupid thing that, because like, just like, <laughs> just the name. I know, itself, like put a target on your back. Exactly. Yeah. And then not have a plan to address it. And I know Nina, who, who was, who was named to, to run it, ran into the same situation where they told her like shut up don't talk to the press don't counter any of these things and she's just like my whole life you know you know academic adult life whatever it has been about like countering disinformation like you have to counter the disinformation you can't just let it go and they they basically gagged her and so it it was yeah these kinds of things are really really frustrating and it, it it's, you know, I think it's unfortunate and it ends up, you know, uh, leading to, to good people not being able to do the job that that really should get done. and that Or not wanting to even try. Yes. I mean, I, so after I withdrew, I talked to a woman who actually had been in the industry, mm-hmm. but who I thought would be really, really good. And I said, well, why don't you throw your name in the hat? And she said, I'm not going to put myself through that hell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, and that's, that is a bigger concern. I mean, like these days, I think there are a lot of people who don't, who just, you know, aren't, aren't interested in doing it. I wouldn't do it. Not that anyone's nom- <laughs> nominating me for anything, but I, there's no way I would ever uh, go anywhere near something like that because the process is just, it just, it just seems not. Beastly. Yes. Beastly yes. is a good word. Yeah. All right. Let's put that in the past. <laughs> yes. That's, we're that's, done. That's gone. That's gone. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's look forward. Let's look forward. So you're now at the American Association for Public Broadband. So, so let's talk about that. What is the American Association for Public Broadband, first of all? So the American Association of Public Broadband is the first advocacy organization promoting the model of community broadband. So this is... And, and there's a lot of models, by the way. It's mm-hmm. not just one. But what, what ties them all together is that the community owns the assets, right. right? So they own the fiber, they own the routers, they you know, they don't necessarily build it. Right. They don't necessarily operate it, but they own the assets. And they decide who's going to be served and at what price. So they're in control. 
So let's talk about the different models. The most famous models are probably Chattanooga Electrical Power Board, EPB, and Wilson, North Carolina Greenlight. Mm -hmm. And those were, you know, municipal utilities. They were electric and power, you know, electric and I don't know if I want water. I just think power. Okay. And they said, okay, well, we can do this. We can, you know, we can run a fiber uh, broadband network to our customers, to our residents. And they've been wildly successful. So they, you know, they're the whole package. Right. Then you have a place, uh, a system in Fairlawn, Ohio. Okay. The home of LeBron James, or I think where LeBron James grew up or knew where he grew up. He does have a big house there. (laughs) Anyway, they didn't have a utility, but they just like, we want to build it. We want to own it and we want to operate it. And that's what they've done. And again, they have like 50% uptake uh, in in their town, which is pretty remarkable. Um, Then you have these public-private partnerships. So for example- uh, there's a company that I work very closely with and has been in the news lately. It's called Utopia Fiber. Right. And they build it, they operate it, but the city or the town owns it. Right. right. So a, a recent example, I don't know if you're going to ask me about it, but I'm going to say uh, talk <laughs> about it anyway. Bountiful City, Utah. Mm-hmm. And only in Utah would there be a city called Bountiful. <laughs> it's, this is wonderful. Yes. They Their city council voted 5-0 to partner with Utopia Fiber to build and operate a community network that would serve everybody. Right. And just as a little bit of background, the main incumbent carriers there are CenturyLink and Comcast. And the city council went to them first and said, this is what we want. You know, we want X price point. We want everybody to be served. We want affordable option. And the incumbent said, nah, not interested. <laughs> right. So they partnered with Utopia. And what's interesting is Utah actually has a rule, a law mm-hmm. that says that the community cannot provide last mile service. Hmm. So that's how Utopia, which which serves like 20 or 21 different cities with open access uh, fiber, uh, how it came to be is to kind of get around this restriction. So what happened was, so Utopia was supposed to put put shovels in the ground in July. And all of a sudden this dark money group, which, you know, I know dark money well, called the Utah taxpayers association starts going door to door. Uh, Well, they hire another group that gets paid for every signature that goes on a petition. Mm. Okay. And this it's group called gather Utah. And again, the whole business model is you get a signature, you get some money. Right. And they were going around and some of the signature gatherers were saying, oh, we're from the city and we're in favor of the fiber project, but it should be put on the ballot. So, you know, look, you've been presented with ballot initiative petitions, don't you? Oh, that sounds great. You sign it. Right, right. So people, you know, didn't understand the implication. They said, well, we just want to put this on the ballot in November, which would have meant at least a six to eight month delay right. in the in the beginning of the construction project and would have cost Bountiful City money because Utopia would have had to reprice. Anyway, long story short, uh, I had not been in the Salt Lake Tribune and I won't give myself entire credit <laughs> for the result, though I think it did raise the consciousness around the country about these dirty tricks. Anyway, long story short, uh, Gather Utah and the Utah Taxpayers Association failed to get the requisite numbers of signatures to put the matter to a ballot. So shovels are going into the ground in Bountiful City this month, and yes. everybody is happy except maybe 
whoever hired the Utah <laughs> yeah. Taxpayer Association right. uh, to uh, to try to scotch this or at least delay it. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, the thing that's interesting to me a little bit about this is like, you know, we've been having this debate also for, for decades, right? I mean, the arguments about... Uh, you know, public, publicly owned broadband have, have gone back ages. And, and I remember, and I always talk about this and nobody, nobody remembers, but like, again, like before the, well, the, the professor, when I was in business school, the professor who effectively inspired me to create TechDirt um, was, was a, a, a guy named Alan McAdams, um, who I don't know if, if you know, uh, him at all, or or knew of him? He's he passed yeah. passed away about a decade ago now, um, and he this is in in the mid nineties. Um, spent many. I, I spent a lot of time with him, um, and he tried to convince me in the mid nineties. And I should give some background, which was that he he had been he was an economist by training and had been in the Nixon White House as an economist, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. And then he had also been a, a government expert witness uh, in the IBM antitrust trial and had gotten really, really interested in sort of the technology world and and specifically about like how do you build more competition out in the technology world. And somewhere in the mid '90s, he became obsessed with broadband access as a key driver of competition across the technology world. And he believed that the world needed, again, this is the mid '90s. This is before people had like DSL or cable modems. People were still on dial-up. And he said, yep. "We need to wire the country with fiber and have open access systems." And he talked about public ownership of the, the underlying infrastructure and allowing the competition to sort of flourish at a, at a level above that. Um, and, and so like I was hearing about this stuff and I, like, I couldn't quite wrap my head around it <laughs> in the nineties when he was explaining to me, there, there was an article in wired magazine in the early two thousands of all things written by Larry Lessig about professor McAdams uh, and his efforts in I think like Vermont or New Hampshire, I forget where there was like an early experiment with this. I think it was Vermont. Yeah, maybe. Um, and I think it went well. I think it, it it then had some problems, which which got twisted. But like just talking about this stuff. So I've been thinking about this issue for many, many years, <laughs> uh, you know, even even longer than, than TechDirt has existed. <laughs> um, well, you know, it, it's... It- First of all, both of them are visionaries. I mean, yeah. Larry, I've known for years, wonderful friend. And this Professor McAdams, ever heard of him? But yeah. God damn, he was way, <laughs> way, way ahead of his time. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting to see, look, I think public ownership of uh, of broadband assets is, is, is a time that has come, yeah. particularly with all the money that's flowing. But I, I do think a lot of cities and towns are just sick of what they're getting from the incumbents. And look, I don't have anything personally against them. Right. You know, they have a business model. That business model generally does not include serving poor urban areas or rural areas. It's just, okay, but if you don't want to serve those areas, that's fine, but don't get laws passed or do all this kind of political ledger domain in order to stop other people from doing it. Like just compete, and the you know the arguments they've been making the same arguments honestly for twenty years. Yeah. So what are the two arguments? <clears throat> One, all community broadband uh, systems are failures. Right. 
which is yes. like, I think, I think the 600 plus systems that exist today put the lie to that. But, you know, I, I talked to a really fascinating guy. His name is Bear Prairie. Okay. And he's with Idaho Falls Fiber, which is one of AAPB's members. And he really walked me through the history in a way I hadn't thought about before. In the very early days when maybe that Vermont system went up or when, remember when Philadelphia did yep. free Wi-Fi? Yep. Remember when you didn't have the demand, right? Right. Who had the demand in the late 90s, early 2000s for, you know, super high speed? I mean, people were still weaning themselves off dial-up, right? So you didn't have the demand. And also the price of equipment was through the roof. Yeah. So it was a very, very hard to make a business case for doing something like this. This has all changed. Right. Right. Now the demand is like skyrocketed. And as Carl Bodie points out, community systems are among the most affordable and most popular right. in the country. So the demand is definitely there. And, and and the fact that hundreds of other communities are, you know, looking to do the same, and including some entire states are looking to do the same, the state of Rhode Island, the state of New Jersey, it really speaks to the success. Yeah. And of course, the, the, the price of the equipment has gone down. So while there may have been early failures, and by the way, let me just say, there are also failures in the private sector, but right. we don't have to talk <laughs> about that. <clears throat> so So that argument just doesn't, again, over the last 10, 15 years, they've almost universally been successes. And maybe you could pick one or two or three out, but that doesn't mean the whole model is a failure. Yeah. The other, the other argument, Mike, is, well, taxpayer dollars shouldn't be com- competing right. with the free market. Okay. You name me one big ISP that doesn't get right. Boku government <laughs> dollars, either from the Universal Service Fund, which is what the FCC administers, or from- this, you know, $65 billion that Congress just laid out or from yep. something called the Affordable Connectivity Program, which is a $30 subsidy. There's one ISP who I actually like and work with, but will remain nameless, who has gotten a billion dollars yeah. from this $30 a month subsidy. So please don't talk to me <laughs> when you're using private public rights of way, right? right? Your know, wires are worth nothing without the permission of the local communities or a state to use them. And you're taking you know, billions of dollars from the federal and state governments right. to run your networks. Don't talk to me about who you, you know, taxpayer dollars competing with. I'm using air quotes, people, the free market, right? Cause it ain't free. Yeah. And I mean, even, even on top of that, right. I mean, you have like, you know, tax cuts that are really designed to help out some of the broadband players as well, which is, you know, effectively the the opposite of that. You know, it's the the money is fungible. It's just depending on, you know, which direction it's going. So so the the argument, yeah, the 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 taxpayer argument doesn't make any sense if you actually understand how any of these things, you know, work in, in reality. The, I mean to me it's all about choice, right? right? Again, if if you decide as a community this is not for you uh, you know, one of the things I, one of the first things I'm working on now is like a handbook or a toolkit about, okay, you're interested in building community broadband. Here's how you do it. Here's how the financing works. Here are the technologies. Here's how you build community support. So it's it's going to be like a simple guidebook and I'll, we'll follow it up with some webinars because, you know, that's the first inquiry I get from a lot of folks considering this. I don't know where to start. Right. So we want to give people a place to start. We also want to give them, we also want to give them mentors right. of others that 600 in the, who have already built these and are successful. So, you know, I think it's really, really important to give people the tools to, you know, to start to think about this and see that it is possible 
Right. And it's not only possible, it's something that the resident, what mayor doesn't want to run for re-election on, I got you gigabit symmetrical broadband. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the other complaints that I've heard that I think is inaccurate is just the idea of like, you know, you don't want the government running your broadband program, but like most of these are, it's, it's a public private partnership. You have, you have companies doing it and you have a setup where it's, you know, it's, it, this is not the DMV running your broadband, right? Well, it's, it, again, it's about choice. Yeah. Nobody is forcing the, the residents of Bountiful City to take, you know, fast, affordable broadband. You, right. you want to stick with CenturyLink at Comcast? Go and God bless. Right. Okay? And that's what, this is all about the city's freedom to choose. I love the term freedom because it's <laughs> used in so many different contexts. Yeah. But this is about, you know, I'm Bountiful City, and I want the freedom to choose what broadband is best for my residents. I think it's a very simple proposition, yeah. and nobody should get a, get in the way of that choice. Compete if if you know if you you know if you really want those residents, compete for them. Right, and and we've seen that in communities where you have community broadband that. Suddenly, speeds get higher from the incumbents. Prices get lower from the incumbents. Yeah. It's it's almost as if when they didn't have competition, they were able to not treat their customers as well. And when there's competition, which the sort of free market people should be very happy with, because that's you know important part of the free market is having competition. You know, it seems to lead to better results for all of them because it puts pressure on the companies to to treat the customers better. Absolutely. And the other thing I want to point out is how important states and local communities have now become in the whole broadband equation. Like in some ways, I'm not going to say the federal government's beside the point because it's Congress that passed this huge bill, right? right? But all the money is going to the states. The Commerce Department's giving the money to the states and they're going to determine who gets this money and they have to work with the local communities because the local communities really know what the needs are better than anybody else. So, you know, the AAPB is one project I'm working on. Another project I'm working on is with the Benton Institute for mm-hmm. Broadband and Society, where I've been a senior fellow for, I think, five, six years. And that is we're trying to build capacity in three different states, Missouri, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, to actually engage the state government in a conversation about what kind of broadband the state needs. Okay, right. and what Again, getting local and state uh, stakeholders to say, we care about this. And, you know, the states were almost completely cut out of, of broadband policymaking until the pandemic. Right. Because when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden schools and libraries and, and, and state offices are like, oh my goodness, we got to make sure, <laughs> you know, we got kids yeah. who need to go to school and the federal government under Ajit Pai you know, tied its hands and was left begging the ISPs to give free broadband. So the states were like, wow, this is this is important as important as electricity and water. Right. And we need to be engaged. So this other project I'm working on is trying to get the actual kind of de- doing what I've done on the federal level is getting a coalition of stakeholders together to go to the governor, to go to the mm. state broadband office and say, you know, we want to be connected universally and here's we want to help you do it. Right. And and there have been been cases, and we've certainly covered this on TechDirt over the years, of like states, you know, 
going in the other direction, trying to pass laws that would effectively block or, or limit uh, community broadband. And, and in fact, I mean, you mentioned early on, like Chattanooga being an example of like a very, very successful community broadband program, but the state of Tennessee then passed a law that effectively limited its ability to expand. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. Do you, do you remember what happened next? I don't actually. So what? <clears throat> well, so I talked about both the uh, uh, Chattanooga and Wilson, North Carolina. Right. And they filed petitions at the FCC uh, when okay. Wheeler was there, when I was there, asking the FCC to preempt the laws of those states right, that right. limited limited them to their footprint. Right. So those systems existed. But if you were a thousand feet away from the footprint of Wilson, and I think we actually had somebody testify to this, they'd cobble together DSL and not low earth orbit satellites, right. but like HughesNet and whatever else they can get for $500 a month. And they couldn't get it because Wilson wanted to serve them, but wasn't right. allowed under state law. So we preempted the states and the Sixth Circuit uh, said, no, there, you don't have authority under the Communications Act. There's nothing in the Communications Act that allows you to do that. Mm -hmm. So not long after that, I went to um, a conference of a bunch of a broadband, community broadband advocates. And I said, look, you've got to get every chamber of commerce, every university, every you know K through 12 school, every healthcare provider. And you need to go to your state legislature and say, these laws are killing us. Right. And a couple have been either softened or repealed. So for example, Colorado was two great leaders in Jared Polis, the yes. governor, my friend, Phil Weiser, the attorney yep. general. They had a law that said, if you were a community that wanted to have its own, its own broadband system, you had to have a, have a ballot initiative. Right. So I believe it was somewhere between 90 and 120 municipalities had these ballot initiatives. Comcast went to everyone tried to block it, lost every single time. And I think Governor Polis finally said, why do we have this law? Right. It's just dumb and it costs the localities money. So they repealed it. Nice. And look, I would love one day for AAPB to have the resources to go into some of these states and try to repeal or again, loosen some of these restrictions. We don't yet, but I'm announcing right here, if you are a state <laughs> that's thinking about it, let me know and we will be there and do whatever we can to, you know, to, to help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, that's good. Cause it's the, some of the straight state restrictions seem particularly ridiculous. Um, well, some like Nebraska, Pennsylvania, are like no way, no how, right. You know, over my dead body. Then of course, like I said, in like in Utah and Tennessee and North Carolina, the restrictions are different, but they're still bad and they're still anti-competitive and they're still anti-consumer. Yeah. Um, I wanted to discuss a little bit something that overlaps with community broadband. It's not always the case. Not every community broadband system has this, but also something that I do think is important for the competitive element is is open access. Um, and this was a, a part of Carl's report that that we published last year. Um, you know, and and open access. There are a few different kind of models of it, but like, yes. you know, the, the, the most basic concept here is that the infrastructure itself, the, the wires, the fiber, uh, the network is built and then effectively any ISP can then drop in and, and offer services on that particular equipment. And, and then in, in some ways strikes me as like, 
such an ideal system, right? Because like you get the competitive side of things and the competitive, the competition is at the service level, not at the underlying infrastructure level. So you don't have to keep digging up things or running wires or whatever it might be. You have this sort of core infrastructure and then you allow for there to be more competition, which again, we think is good for a whole variety of, of, of you know, fundamental reasons um, on an open access system. And it seems like, the community broadband programs that have built out infrastructure are a lot more open to providing open access uh, than, you know, the, than the, the private ones. Well, again, and again, like in Utah and Ohio is another place, they're almost forced to. Right. Because they don't allow the community to provide last mile service or like in Pennsylvania, you're not allowed to make any money from it. Right. Which is like, okay. Um, but yeah, look, Open access to me is reminiscent of what we had in the dial-up year. Yes. Now, it's a little bit different to the extent the law had to force it, right? right? The Telecommunications Act of 1996 said dominant providers had to open up their networks. And and, and the, the incumbents would often find ways to like, they wouldn't let the, the competitor use the bathrooms and all this kind of <laughs> right. stuff. But the average, at the time, like in the late 90s, the average American had a choice of 13 dial-up ISPs. Yeah. And in Utah, in a number of the of the cities that U- Utopia serves, they have a choice of ten. Yeah. And in Ammon, Ohio, which again built from scratch, this tiny little town, they also have like a choice of like six or seven. Yeah. That to me is the absolute ideal. Now, there are some open access systems where, for instance, instance in a place called Westminster, Maryland, which is seventy five miles. West of Baltimore, I actually spoke when I was at the FCC at their sort of their lighting, their fiber ah. lighting ceremony. They haven't been able to attract any more than one, which mm. is Ting, okay. uh, which you know provides last mile service. Sometimes build and operate, sometimes just operate. So you know that the, to me that doesn't make open access bad. Westminster right. only has ten thousand residents, so you can kind of understand. But I, that, I don't think the fact that there are some open access systems that haven't been able to attract more than one should mean that it's somehow a bad thing. Right. Right. Uh, so I do think it is the ideal. I, I think you're right. You know, there's middle mile open access, there's last mile open access, but it, it is interesting to see how much it is actually being considered uh, as the model across the country, even in those states that are otherwise restrictive. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, it's interesting. Like the 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 Ammon uh, example. I mean, they even have like basically there's like a portal where you can go and see like who your, your ISP options are and you can just sort of click and choose. And it's like, you know, ordering something off of Amazon, you can switch your, your ISP, which is like, you know, if you believe in competition and, and, and the market to me, like, that seems like that's a great system that is, that's showing like what competition can actually do. It's a great system, and frankly, that's, that's what they have in Europe, particularly yeah. in England, where you're like, I mean, the number of choices they have in 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 parts of England are just like crazy, like thirty or fifty. Yeah, and again, you just you pick from a menu, and you can just change like that, and that to me is the competitive ideal. And you know, I know Carl complains <laughs> that nobody talks about the lack of competition in broadband, and he's right. Yeah, because what we have for the most part is a bunch of you know regional. Monopolies or duopolies, the the FCC's numbers bear that out, yeah. and it, that doesn't work for anybody. Yeah, uh, and 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 communities have an opportunity now 
to ensure that there's competition because I don't see this Congress or maybe any Congress in the future or any FCC soon, you know, presenting the kind of at least regulatory environment that would allow this to thrive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's funny, you you know, you brought up the the dial up example and I was thinking back, I mean, you know, I, I, I had written about this like, 25 years ago or something. When, when I first moved to Silicon Valley, I had no options for broadband, um, which I thought was funny. I was in the, the heart of Silicon Valley and there was nothing. I had, I had zero options. Um, and so I, you know, for the first few, first few years that I lived here, I just had dial up access, but I had this, in, you know, massive choice. I, I remember, I can't even remember what the company was called, but I, I kept that account for a really long time because it was it was some like random tiny uh, you know dial up provider. I think they were based in Washington State, uh, but they they had phone numbers all around the country, and you just you know could look up what the local phone number was wherever you were. And one when I finally did get broadband, I still used that as a backup in case the broadband went down or if I was traveling somewhere and I just needed like a local number. Um, and it was just you know you could just pick from a list of of a huge number of ones, and I just found this one. It was very very inexpensive. I think I was paying like five dollars a month or ten dollars a month. I can't even remember now. And it was just this very useful you know backup service. But it was just like I could go down the list and find other you know other um, you know ISPs that would offer you know similar things. Because they were, they you know, they weren't building out the, the network. They were just running the right. servers on top of it. But then at Correct. the at the same time, when I finally did get get uh, broadband, um, you know, in Silicon Valley, and and I had written something about this way back when. I think the one time I was published in Salon, uh, I wrote about <laughs> I, I wrote about this story. Good old Salon. Good old Salon. <laughs> uh, I wrote about this uh, how every broadband provider who provided me service in Silicon Valley went out of business within about a month. So I went through, I forget, I can't even remember their names. There were all of these names of these, these providers who were offering, you know, uh, who, who were offering broadband. And I went through all of the, these, these troubles. And I remember clearly, and now, you know, it's been decades. So I don't remember the ex- exact details, but I remember like two of them had gone out of business. And then this third one, you know, I signed up for, and I remember the installer coming and saying, and I was like, you know, I'm kind of worried because I've, I've, you know, in the last year I've gone through all these different broadband providers and, and they all die. Um, and he's like, oh no, these guys, they're solid. They're really solid. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, you know, before this I had so-and-so and again, I don't remember the names and he was like, oh yeah, yeah. They went out of business. He's like, but they were really solid too. And I was like, you just, you just don't, <laughs> these guys are solid. <laughs> so, so, you know. It, but you know why that <laughs> happened, right? So I had a, I had a communications director of public knowledge who had a, a, a book. A, a, I'm showing very, very thick book of 7,000 competitive ISPs. Yeah. They basically, when the FCC uh, under, um, under Michael Powell and Kevin Martin said broadband is an information service, right. not a telecommunications service like a telephone, then then broadband providers were no longer subject to that requirement right. that they open up the network. And and the and the the, the competitive ISP model went away overnight. Yeah. And that's what you were experiencing. Yes. You were experiencing because of deregulation, 
an entire, you know, huge segment of the industry just dried up literally overnight. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it was. And this is an opportunity for it to come back again. And and this is why, you know, when people say to me, well, you know, open access doesn't work because, you know, look at a Westminster or look at a Holly Springs. There's only one. No, no. Well, you have to also give the industry, the competitive industry time to grow again and time to realize, oh, you know, my business isn't going to drive, dry up overnight because, you know, the federal government can't screw with this. Right. <laughs> you know, the state government could. Right. But I think, you know, I think the days of, I'm hoping the days of the incumbents getting these restrictive laws passed uh, are over. Although I will say, Mike, uh, that for the money that the Commerce Department is giving to the state, so this is the uh, Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Fund, right. which is $42.5 billion, the incumbents are trying to fix the rules, in some cases, uh, uh, laws in states mm-hmm. to make it more difficult for community broadband systems to get that money. Or frankly, any kind of non-traditional ISP, whether they be co-ops or schools and libraries, uh, they're, they're, they're trying to tilt the playing field. And that's one of the things I'm very, very concerned about, among other things with that program. But that in particular yeah. is there are efforts to try to tilt the playing field towards the incumbents getting the money and not non-traditional players. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, because I imagine that there are people listening to this who live in communities where they would like to have community broadband and they don't. Um, what, what, what are the, th- I think for a lot of people, they just think like, well, it's, it's just never going to happen here, but are there things that, that people can do? What should they be doing? Uh, well, so two things come to mind immediately. First of all, the Bountiful City system grew up from a grassroots campaign, mm-hmm. right? So there were people in the community, leaders in the community and said, the service we're getting now is inadequate. We want the city council to look at alternatives. And by the way, it was a three-year process. It's not like they, you know, right, flipped a switch right. or tossed a coin. They, you know, again, I said, they asked the incumbents, they had a request for a proposal, they had a feasibility study. They, they, they checked all the check, you know, all the boxes, right. dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's. So you can do it. I think I think the main thing is you got to find leaders. Right. So you either find leaders who are policymakers. So in Westminster, there was a guy named Robert Wack, great guy, who was on the county council that Westminster was part of. And he's like, we have got to build an open access network. And he just, he was bound and determined to make it happen. Or if a community really wants it, they can push their city council or their county council to do this. That's where it really starts, okay. right? The, the the information on how to finance it and all that kind of stuff. Again, that's something that we will be provided and providing. And there have been, you know, various and sundry reports over the years. We want to do sort of the latest and the greatest and point people to resources that can help them. But it really starts with community leadership. Right. And if you want it, like it be it a mayor, be it a city council member, uh, be it a governor saying, look, this is a model that's critically important and we cannot wait anymore for the incumbents to give us affordable, robust broadband. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. I, I guess the, the, the other thing that I'm thinking about and we'll, we'll sort of wrap up here cause we're, we could talk forever, I'm sure, but like yes, we could. As long as we don't talk about my nomination yes, anymore, yes, I yes. talk for days. <laughs> um, 
So, I mean, one of the other things that I've been thinking about, you know, when it comes to like the open access stuff and you, and you talk about Westminster or whatever, only attracting one, you know, I'm, I'm wondering too, like, as more of these get developed and more of these are out there, if you begin to build up like more companies who basically, you know, it's it's a sort of chicken and egg situation where as you have more of these open access community broadband networks where there is a spot for companies to drop in, then like you open up the incentive for more companies to say like, oh, we're just going to drop our service into each of these different, you know, there are obviously differences in, in the different ones and how they would do it. But like, you know, as you build up more of these, then you open up the the space for companies to to that to be their business of we're just going to provide service on these open access networks. Exactly. And even the incumbents, right? Yes. So I've oh, talked totally. to, you know, I've, I've talked to some of the incumbents and, you know, they're, they're open to the open access idea because it's an opportunity. They don't have to build the network right. from scratch. Right. You know, perhaps we should have started with open access to begin with, yes. like, you know, so the facilities based competition, when you have cable competing against telecom competing against wireless, maybe wasn't the best idea. Right. Uh, but th- it's the world we live in now. And if we could kind of fix it by having more open access, I think you're absolutely right. I'm always encouraging uh, the incumbents to see community broadband and see open access as a business opportunity and not as a competitive threat. And some have approached me quietly and said, yes, Gigi, I'd like to find ways to work together. And I think that's really, really refreshing. I mean, I'm I'm wondering, are there any cases of like the incumbents, the large incumbents actually using an open access system? Uh, not that I know okay. of, but I, I think the time will come. And I think you, you put your finger on something else and really what I want to do at AP, APB. Obviously, I'm going to def- do defense like with Bountiful City, sure. but I really do want to, you know, grow the field, at least double the, the number of community broadband systems that we have in this country in five years. And when you do that, when you have more and more and more, then it just becomes a fait accompli. Right. And it just, it becomes very, very difficult for others to come in, the incumbents or anybody else to come in and say, this is a failed model, it's a bad model, we're going to stop it because it just becomes too too popular. Right. Uh, and and you just can't stop it. And that's what I want. I want the Rolling Stone to you know continue to gather moss so it basically becomes unstoppable. Right, right. Cool. Well, it's always great to talk to you. <laughs> Same here. Let's not wait. How many years? It's like seven years yeah, or something. It's, Eight it's, years. It's been six or seven years <laughs> since, since I had. Let's not wait that long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's 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 absolutely do this again uh, and and continue to have these conversations. Um, but uh, as I said, it, it is great to talk to you again uh, and and to catch up. I'm I'm sorry that it had to come after two years of hell for you, <laughs> but, uh, you know, look, I, I got, you know, I have to say, uh, maybe it would have had a bigger platform and been an FCC commissioner, but I think I've got a pretty big one now. Yeah. And I really, I said, I want to use it to accomplish the things that I would have tried to accomplish as an FCC commissioner. And right. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that I can use this platform, uh, to really promote competition, uh, and universal, universal, affordable, robust access throughout the country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully I, I believe in you. <laughs> so, you. so let's see it happen. Uh, but so says the Silicon Valley <laughs> Oracle, it will happen. It will become. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Well, thank you very much for, for taking the time to come on the podcast and for all the work that you do. 
and uh, this was great. And thank you to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks. To grab a shovel and dig up the tap.